Hosea chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 2 through 9 of this opening chapter of this prophecy. Hosea, actually I'm going to read beginning in verse 1, I'm sorry. Hosea chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, reading through verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give attention to it, even though these are not exactly the easiest words to read. They are somewhat dark and somewhat difficult, but they are indeed the word of of God himself. So let's give attention to it. Hosea 1, beginning with verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again. And bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. The Lord said, Call his name not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. This ends the reading of God's word. It's hard to stop there because I just want to go right to the next verse where there's a great deal of encouragement right behind all that. Be that as it may, this is the passage before us this evening. I suspect there's not a single person in this room that hears the word discipline with any joy. Most of the time when we hear that word, when it's threatened, when it's mentioned, when it's spoken in our homes or within the confines or life of the church, it is something that we generally respond with a certain degree of apprehension, concern, or otherwise. Rarely do we respond to discipline in a way that we ought Children, parents, adults, all of us at one time or another have faced the discipline of someone in authority, and we have recognized and noted that it is not always the easiest thing to deal with. It's not always the easiest thing to endure. But here in this opening lines, these opening lines of the opening chapter of this prophecy, we have just that. We have an indictment. We have words of discipline. We have words coming from the God of heaven himself against his covenant people, an act of discipline, a threat of discipline, words that are difficult to hear, words that are not pleasing to the ear or even to the eye, things that even might make you go, huh, and wonder, is this the God of heaven really that is saying these things? Yes, it is. And it's the God who will eventually bring to them hope, but he first needs to deal with their sin. Now I wonder, as you hear these words in Hosea, or perhaps other words from the 
from God's word, how do you respond to discipline? How do you respond to these kinds of statements, these kinds of indictments that are made against you? There are times, no doubt, in the preaching of God's word in which you hear those things. The Spirit of God, not me, the Spirit of God puts his finger on a particular area, a particular item of your life, and asks you to respond to it. You see, preaching is a form of discipline. It's a positive form. It's a good one. It's one that if responded to rightly, we can avoid that negative thing that no one really likes very much. How do you respond to it when the Spirit of God says, that's you, and it needs to stop, and it needs to be turned away from, it needs to be repented, and it needs to cease and desist in your life. I'll help you, I'll guide you, but you need to turn away from this, from this matter. How do you respond when the voice of Jehovah speaks? when he speaks at times in ways that are on all pleasing to the ear. None of these things that are in these verses, verses 2 through 9, are all that easy to read or even easy to process. But they're here. This is the voice of Jehovah speaking about his covenant people, a people that have so badly lost their way that God must spank them, as it were. He must discipline them before He can build them back up again and show them that all that He is doing, even in this dark section, is really an act of love for them. Sure, He could just leave them to their devices and let them go their way and be hopelessly lost for all of eternity. Or... He can first remember who he is, and he does. He can remember his covenant promise to them, and he does. And he can restore them, and he will. Throughout the bulk of this prophecy, we will see time and again, even in verse 10 of this passage, we will see that hope extended to a wayward people. But but right now, He's going to show himself as a holy God. He doesn't play around with sin. He won't ignore it just because they belong to him. He is going to deal with it. And indeed, he does deal with it in a very pronounced way, in living color, here in these opening words of this prophecy. And so I want to show you this evening that as a redeemed people, we, you, serve a holy God and He does not trifle with sin. It's simple. It's rather academic, isn't it? Kind of God who's holy trifles with sin. It would defy the very nature of his holiness, wouldn't it? I want to show you this evening through these verses uh, that as a redeemed people, we, you, serve a holy God who does not trifle uh, with sin. Two points as we consider these verses this evening. First, we will consider the sin of a redeemed people, and then the statements of a holy God. The sin, what is the sin? The sin of the redeemed people 
And then how does God respond to it? Well, he responds exactly how you'd expect him to respond as a holy God. He responds with very strong language against them. First, the sin of a redeemed people. This prophecy that's being issued here is not being issued to a pagan world. It's being issued to the covenant people of God, the redeemed of the Lord, the visible church, as it were. Though they are, in fact, at this particular juncture of their existence, they are behaving as though they are pagan. They are behaving in a way that is atrocious. There's there's an atrocity, an offense that is being offered before the God of heaven. It's being issued, this prophecy, to the redeemed of the Lord, even the northern kingdom, as we we noted last week. And the the issue is serious. It's so serious that it, it starts the prophecy. It begins with the bad news. It begins with the, the horror of the event. It begins with the description of the nature of the event. So egregious is this sin that they are committing that God issues these rather strange commands uh, in the ears of Hosea. But this issue is not just relevant for the days of Hosea. This issue is relevant for us today in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. For if we are not careful, we as the covenant people, the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ, can be just like these people. We can act out just as they are. We can behave just as they are. We can go along, sailing along our day, thinking all is well, all is fine, when in fact it isn't and incur the very judgment of God, His hand of discipline, a heavy hand of discipline, upon them, upon us. And so here, God gives a command. The command is given there in verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, words that just are shocking on its face. Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom. Go marry a prostitute, Hosea. This is what you're going to do. You are the prophet of the Lord, and you are going to go marry this woman who is a woman of of harlotry. She's a prostitute. Now, there are some in the church, of course, that they have a difficulty with this command. They have good reason to have difficulty. It's not as though they don't have biblical precedent. All the way back in Leviticus 21, 13 through 15, this entire endeavor, this entire behavior is condemned by the God who is now giving this command here to Hosea. Calvin himself thinks it's an allegory. I disagree with Calvin. Sorry, I love Calvin, but I don't think he's right here. I understand why he says it. He's having a difficult time rationalizing in his mind how the God who gives this command in Leviticus 23 or 21 can turn around and then give a command to do the very opposite of what he said you can't do. But we must remember one thing. God is the lawgiver. If in his divine will and providence he decides to set aside that command for his own purposes, he can do that. And he does. He does it to illustrate in real, true, living color what is going on in the life of Israel, the northern kingdom. What is going on? Well, 
We have idolatry in full living color. Rank and file, from person to person, from camp to camp in the northern kingdom, there is idolatry of the highest order. Lived out before the face of a holy God who has redeemed them. Can you think, even personally reflect upon what Hosea must have been thinking? You want me to do what? Undoubtedly, Hosea knew the words of Leviticus 21. Come again? We weren't there. We're not privy to the conversation. We don't know what was said. But we do know this, don't we? He did it. He obeyed. In the face of what seems so ridiculous in his mind, maybe, he does what the God of heaven tells him to do. He obeys. God tells him to take this woman of whoredom. We know her as Gomer. He goes, verse 3, he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. God wants Hosea to do with Gomer what he has done for his covenant people. He wants him to take an unworthy person, a harlot, a prostitute, and he wants him to take her as his wife. Even as God took a people that were not a people, and made them a people. A people he redeemed, but a people who are now playing the harlot before their God, their Father, their Redeemer. And so, Hosea goes, he obeys, in spite of his personal emotions and attitudes, perhaps he obeys that which the Lord told him. To do. Now it is true in our own lives. There will be times when we are sometimes called upon by God to do very difficult things. The question really isn't that it's not difficult. We get that part. The question is whether we're going to be speedy in obedience to do what He tells us. We can justify our disobedience. We can, as we saw this morning, we can create all the legal loopholes we'd like in the equation, but the word of the Lord is still the word of the Lord. And here, in this passage, there's absolutely no ambiguity as to the command. Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom. And, and, oh, by the way, You're going to have children with her too. What? But he obeys. And two, we must, we too must be that willing to obey, even when it's difficult or even when it is hard. So the command of Jehovah is to go marry a prostitute, have women from a prostitute. Why? What is the concern? What is the concern of Jehovah here in this passage? Well, the act is that whoredom has occurred within the camp, within the life of the people. And the point, really, is that spiritual adultery in the form of idolatry and Baal worship has become part and parcel of the camp. It's become part and parcel of the visible church. It's become part and parcel of God's people. Hearts not devoted to the God who's redeemed them. The true God, their husband. They have played the harlot. And they have acted against him. 
in that symbolic, figurative marriage that exists between the God of heaven and His church. And each time you and I supplant God in this manner, every time we disobey God in this manner, every time we turn away from the living God to other things that are not Him, when our hearts are stolen away by the things of this world, we are just like these people. We are committing idolatry. And so God decides in this picture, this living picture, to give to them a living picture of the issue in the face of this prophet and his wife, Gomer. Now why does God give this command and why does he even want to illustrate this before the people? Well, as I've mentioned already, God is holy. And he has called us singularly to be in love with him not with the bales of this world, not with the idols of our lives, not with those things that compete for our affections, and there's many of them. He wants us singularly in love with Him. To seek first, as Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Certainly, these people were not doing that. If they were, none of this would be occurring. There wouldn't be a prophecy of Hosea at all. Uh, But they're not. They are seeking first their kingdom and their righteousness. They have lost their way. They have turned to other gods in the process. But you see, it's not unique to them. Like the people of Hosea's day, you and I are prone to idolatry, to substitute things in the place of God Calvin himself says in his, one of his well-known quotes, we are all idle factories. We just crank them out on a daily basis. And if we're not careful, we will turn ourselves to them. No, they may not be a golden calf, but there are many different types of idols that we can fashion in our day, in our lives, in the way we live. For instance, the idol of self, the Mimi God, Sorry, I like to say that. I had a pastor when I was much younger who would reference it that way, and it just kind of stuck with me. Maybe it'll stick with you. The idol of self, the Mimi God, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Paul says, no. Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. To think of others more importantly than think of yourself. What are your conversations like? Are they always about you? Your wishes, your wants, your desires, your concerns, your anxieties. you got a self problem. you got an idol problem. How about the idol of money? Uh-oh. Can't talk about that in the church. I am. The idol of money. Where do you spend it? Where you spend it often reveals much of where your heart is. Jesus himself says that in Matthew chapter 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How about the idol of priorities? Are your priorities God's priorities? Or are they just yours alone without any regard for what God would want? We all have that struggle. 
young people especially, I think. What are your priorities in life? What are your desires? What do you want to do? What are your goals? Are they bathed under the rubric and umbrella of God's Word? Bathed in prayer, seeking His face for what He would have for you. Maybe He's calling you to Japan. Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe He's calling you to serve Him in different places in the world. Maybe not. But are you establishing those goals and priorities under the rubric of the Word of God? How about the idol of relationships? Bad company corrupts good morals, Paul says. Think of the people of God in Canaan. And here they are, they're in Canaan, and they didn't do what they were supposed to do. God told them, get rid of these people, kick them out, dominate them, get rid of their false gods, their deities. Why? Because if you don't, it will corrupt you. Guess what? They didn't, and it corrupted them. Surprise. What are your relationships like? Are you centering yourself in your most inner circle with godly people who pursue Christ and His righteousness? Are you receiving your wisdom and attention and counsel from those that don't love the Lord? What kind of guidance do you think you're going to get? That which is rooted in worldliness? How about the idol of time? Paul says to redeem the time because the days are evil. How about this one? Oh, I'm going to touch on the American God. Here it is. Anybody want to venture to guess? The idol of entertainment. I have a God-given right to be entertained. Trying to find that one. Not quite sure it's there. These Things that pass before our eyes day after day, night after night. We give so much attention to it. Where's your heart? Is it pursuing hard the God of heaven? Or has it been turned aside in some small measure, some large measure, maybe something in between? To some of these areas, all of these areas, other areas, we must be careful. I must be careful. Because Calvin's right. We are idol factories. The people of old were. They fell into this sin egregiously. Didn't think much of it either. So will we if we are not careful. The sin of a redeemed people here is illustrated in this strange marriage between the prophet and this prostitute to illustrate in clarity the premier sin of the people of Israel, which was idolatry. They have forgotten their God. And as a result, of course, he's going to respond, isn't he? Why does he respond? Why doesn't he just forget it and let them go about their way? Maybe he has something else he could have been doing, and never mind these people. It's been going on for years, hundreds. He's been patient. 
Maybe he should have just said, you know, forget it. But he doesn't do that, does he? He responds with these indictments. He responds with threats of discipline. Why does he do all of that? He does it because of his love for them. Because that's what discipline is. Discipline from God is always an act of love to his children. Always perfect love. Every single time. It never misses the mark. The discipline from mom and dad to parent to children isn't always that perfect. And it's certainly not that way from elders to members. But discipline is indeed an act of love from a holy God to the people. And since God is holy, he must judge them. He does judge them. And God is speaking now in this text. Notice, and Yahweh said, and Yahweh said, as you look through these verses, Jehovah himself is speaking to the people, his covenant people, a people that he loves, a people that he's promised great things to. Judgment that is shown in real color, real time, in this marriage between Hosea and Gomer and the children that they bear. As a result, first, the marriage, marry a whore. God uses the sacred institution of marriage that he instituted alongside the covenant relationship of offspring that come from a godly marriage to highlight his anger with his people. He's angry. He is angry at their idolatry. He's angry in the same way he was in Exodus 32 when Moses is on the mountain and God is there and he says to them, you need to get down off this mountain. Go, just go. Why? Why, God? Because your people, Moses, not my people, your people have profaned themselves. What have they done? Uh, idolatry. They made the golden calf. They're worshiping it. Not much has changed. He was not happy with them. He threatened to eliminate them entirely. As a result, Moses pleads with them, rescues them. He highlights this judgment in the marriage, but he also does it in the children. God as prosecutor comes and charges the people with adultery and then specifies three judgments against the wickedness of the people. First, the first portent, P-O-R-T-E-N-T. It's not my word, by the way. I think I got that from some, somebody. I don't think I'm that smart. I don't even know, wouldn't have known what it meant until I looked it up. What does it mean? It's a, a sign or a warning He gives that through the significance of the place in which he mentions there in verse 4. The Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. This is the place in the face of a name of this first child, the son that was born to this marriage of unusual circumstance. What's its significance in light of the judgment that God is issuing? Well, first, Jezreel is a valley between the mountain ranges of Samaria and Galilee. 
Now, if you know your Bible, you know the, if you can see the map of Israel, you, you know basically what we're talking about here. We're talking about the northern uh, sections of that land. Samaria in the middle. Galilee at the north. The Sea of Galilee at the top. The Dead Sea at the bottom. The Jordan River connecting the two. Right in the middle is Samaria. Above Samaria is this valley that is mentioned here. Between, between the mountain ranges of Samaria and Galilee. Whoopee. Oh no, this is very significant actually. Why? Well, first, because it's the place of Gideon's victory over the Midianites, the Midianites in Judges 6, 33 and 34. God was with Gideon there, but now... He uses this valley as a pejorative in an act of judgment against the people. God is with Gideon, and there's a great victory there. His 300 men, you know, and the odds are stacked against him, but yet he still prevails. Not now, he says. Your idolatry, your wickedness before me will lead you to ruin, not success, not victory. Second, it's the place where wicked Jehu, mentioned specifically in the text, wicked Jehu came to power through violence in 1 Kings 21, 1 and 2. And third, and even more awful than that second one, is the place where wicked Ahab, and he was wicked, but his wife was way worse, by the way. Wicked Ahab extorted the vineyard of Naboth. You remember the story. He wanted it. He took it. And not only did he take it, he eventually killed him. The result, of course, was not good. It was bad. God's righteous anger was leveled against him. God uses this place in the face of this first child to show forth his judgment against them. This is not good. This is bad. This is awful. The victory of Gideon will not be yours if you continue in this way. And as a result, because of this place and these two other items, these wicked items, Jehu and Ahab, it's clearly illustrating to the people as they know their history that God is using this as a pejorative against them. The significance of the place, and then the significance even of the name. The name means God sows or plants. The irony, of course, is that the similarity of the name Jezreel and that of Israel, it's really a pun embedded embedded in the opening lines of the prophecy. The idea is that of scattering. He's not uniting them anymore. He will scatter them because of their sin. And he does, doesn't he? In 722 B.C., He does indeed scatter them to the Assyrian Empire. He eventually restores them in remnant back to the land of Israel at some point. But this is almost predictive of what he is going to do because of their sin. He will indeed break the bow of Israel. The application of this first name is quite plain. When you reject God as they have done, you get into big trouble. Now, I don't think I need to paint too clear a picture as we look around our world. 
We'll start there. A world that has forgotten God, a world that has rejected God, a world that has turned away from the living and true God, a a world that has replaced for the God of heaven everything else. How's that going? How's that working out? Not so good. We see wars upon wars in our world today. We see a nation, our nation, in, in crisis. We see rank and file idolatry being paraded in front of our own eyes day after day. But it's easy to pick on the culture. What about the church? Because this is the point of the text, isn't it? We're not talking about the world. We're talking about the covenant people. When you reject God, when you supplant God, when you put something else in place of God, brothers and sisters, you're going to get into big trouble. Not because God hates you, but because He loves you and wants to restore you. He wants to bring you back to Himself. He's going to woo you, as we're going to see in a couple sermons from now. He will woo His covenant people. Because the story is really about God's faithfulness and love. But one aspect of His love is indeed chastisement. We all know what the words of Hebrews 12 says. Do not despise the discipline of the Lord. For those he loves, he chastises, he disciplines, he rebukes. Safe to say that if he didn't love these people, he wouldn't have bothered. But he does. And so he does what he does here. Think of Jonah. The man of God, go to Nineveh. Nope. Go to Nineveh. Uh Uh-uh. Go to Nineveh. No way. I'm going the other way. Thank you very much. Okay, fine. Big storm comes, ships in peril, and Jonah's down there asleep, strangely enough. They wake him up. Dude, what are you doing? We're going to die. Jonah knows exactly why this is happening. Throw me overboard. Okay. Overboard he goes. And God lets him drown. That's it. End of Jonah. No more Jonah. It's all over. Wrong. No. He disciplines him. This whole act is discipline against Jonah. And what happens? This big fish comes along. It swallows him. Can't even imagine. It's bad enough to see it from the outside. To see it from the inside would just... Turns my stomach. Why? Because he loved Jonah. That's why. He wasn't going to let him wander like this. So he judges him. He disciplines him in an act of great love for him. But when we determine to do things in opposition to God's commands, even as the people here in Hosea's day are doing, whatever they are, friends, I tell you candidly, it will not go well. No, God may not hit your house with a meteor. He may. I don't know. I hope not. But it won't go well. God guarantees it. God will cause those things to turn to dust in your mouth. Why? Because of his love for you. That's why. 
You might think, well, it would just be a lot nicer if he was just sweet and, pie, uh, sweet and happy all the time. It didn't bother me with my, just leave me alone, let me sin in peace. No, you're not going to do that. Parents, you don't do that. Your children break your rules in the house. They disobey you, you discipline them. Why? Because you hate them, of course. No, you love them. You don't want them to grow up as insolent, God-hating people. So you and I, we need to think. We need to reflect what things in our lives, in your lives, do you need to repent of this evening? Not tomorrow, not soon, not now. Don't trifle with God. Maybe he's disciplining you to get your attention, to wake you up. I guarantee he's doing it out of his love for you. The second portent or the second sign or warning, moving more speedily now, the naming of the child, no mercy, and the implications. It sounds pretty awful. What? I'm not having mercy on him anymore. I'm done. No more mercy. Okay. Well, as I, we noted in the first name, there's the significance of this name. Judgment is prophesied in the first child. The necessary advance is that in this judgment there will, be, there will not be any mercy or forgiveness offered to them. They will incur the consequence of their actions. The imminent withdrawal, in the words of one commentator, the imminent withdrawal of the compassion of God that he has shown them for years, years and years, longer than any of you have been alive. I mean any of you. There are some theological difficulties in this name as well. Here God says to them, I will have no mercy. Name this child, this Woman, this girl, name her no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Well, what's the theological difficulty? Has God lied? Didn't he promise his covenant faithfulness to his church? How many times do we read in Psalm 136 of the love and mercy of God that endures forever? 26 times, actually. Has he changed? Has he decided to do something else? How do we resolve this? Well, first we assume, we believe that the Bible emphatically teaches a singular theological truth that God is merciful and he is loving and he is long-suffering. However, due to sinful interference... That is to say, when we insist on our own way and persevere in sin, the day comes when the daily mercies of God are withdrawn from us and we are abandoned to our own folly. This is what he's doing here. He is simply withdrawing that daily mercy that he issues to his covenant people that they might incur the the consequences, the full force of the consequences that would not have been theirs had they not deviated with the sinful interference and walked away from the God of heaven. And frankly, this behavior on our part is even more grievous today since the cross than it is even in the days of Hosea. For we know more than they do. And we have one benefit that they did not have. And that is that we have the eternal abiding spirit of God with us always. At any moment of any time. And there's always a divine reason. 
God is merciful. He is long-suffering. Our sin, however, can, can cause God to withdraw for a season. This mercy that we might be come face-to-face with our sin as an act of love, an act of discipline for a divine reason. And here it is. We will hear and truly repent and turn from it then. That is the goal of every act of discipline. God withdraws His mercy for a season that He might bring them to the end of themselves and turn away from their sin. It was Derek Kidner in his commentary who says, God's love is not blind, nor is it coercive. It follows that since mercy without response is self-defeating and forgiveness without a healed relationship is empty, there may come a point at which the only thing left for even God to say is, how often would I and you would not? That's what's happening here. How often have I appealed to you through the prophets? How often have I preached sermons to you time after time? How often have I said this? How often have I said that? And you would not. You would not hear me. So he withdraws this mercy to them for a season that they might come face to face with themselves, with their sin, that they might learn, even as Paul turned Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan, that they might not learn, that they might learn not to blaspheme. Even here, he turns them over to themselves, that they might learn not to trifle with God, that they might turn from their idolatry and from their sin, because they will not prosper if they continue. And God knows that. But even in this, this awful judgment, which is awful when you read it, no mercy, Man, thank you. I pray for God's mercy every day. More mercy, Lord. More grace, Lord. Not less, more. As McShane would say, it's a sure sign of grace to ask for more grace. But notice embedded, even in this judgment, there's hope. I'd like to say it's subtle, but it's really, it's not all that subtle, is it? Verse 7, I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. It's not by might or power of men, but it's by the work of he who's coming, the king that sits on David's throne. Embedded hope in the judgment, God will save Judah. He will save his people, not by might, but indeed by his son. The third portent, the third child, the naming of the child, not my people, and the implications of such, not your God. Not my people. I I, I can't think of a more painful rendering of the God who redeemed them for him to say to them, you're not my people. He is not saying that they are not redeemed by him. They are not, he's not saying that his covenant is now null and void. He is not saying any of that. They are not behaving that way. And without divine mercy, Israel could not remain God's people. It's really the inverse of Exodus 3. I am for the people. Moses, the burning bush. And now he says, I I am not for the people. 
I am not for them because of the way they're behaving, because of their actions and their behavior. And they need to be disciplined. They need to know that they cannot persist in this way for fear that they will be lost forever because God is holy and He will be faithful to Himself first. And He must be. Otherwise, He is not God. And so we note in these verses that there's great sin. It's pictured in this marriage in all of its confusion, perhaps, in your mind and the weirdness of it all. But it's a marriage that highlights the sin of the people. And in that marriage, these indictments, these judgments come because of their idolatry, their cold hearts toward God. Maybe you have a cold heart tonight. Maybe it's not what it was at one time. Maybe something is tripping you up in your life. Maybe some idol that has turned you away, even by degrees, from Him. What would God say to you? Do you want to hear no mercy? Do you want to hear not my people? Do you want to hear these things? No, you don't. But you have heard the Word of God preached. You've heard Him. What would He say to you? He would say to turn from this. I've placed my love upon you. I am for you. I am your God. You don't need those idols. You only need me. He would call you to give up everything that has captured your heart in such a way in favor of Him who is triune. Father, Son, and Spirit. Brothers and sisters, don't play games with these matters because God doesn't. And He won't. He can't. The fact of the matter is, as it were, for the people of Hosea's day, it is for our day, life and death hang on this very subject. God didn't abandon them. We're going to note that as we work our way through this prophecy. We're going to see the faithfulness of God, the love of God to an unfaithful people, an undeserving people. We're going to see a remnant that comes from the northern kingdom. God in His mercy established them many years later. He would call out to you this evening, His people. You look to Christ. We trust Him. You turn away from those things that will, de- will cause you to wander from Him. You place your hope in Him alone. He grants forgiveness to everyone, even these people. As bad as it is, God's going to grant forgiveness to them. He grants it to you and me. He will not abandon you. He will not turn you aside. You simply look to the God of heaven alone for all that you need. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for all that it does teach us and even these passages that are, well, hard. They're hard to read. They're hard to preach. But we know that even in your acts, even in your most severe acts of discipline, it is really an act of love for your people. And so may you help us May we turn our hearts to you. 
May we not give ourselves over to that which will never satisfy. Be kind to us and help us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.